So what do a couple of Jews, a young man who is half Jew, and a wealthy businesswoman, and an intellectual doctor, and an impoverished ex-slave girl and a Roman jailer, what do they all have in common? This eclectic group of people, what they all have in common is they're the church. They're the church. Last week, um, Caleb talked about how God created this family, this Adam and Eve, by which they would then be a growing family, by which this family would go out all across the world, by which it would be find its middle and sustainer, being God the Father, that would bring about nourishment in our relationship with God and through our relationship with each other as a family. But we know from the fall, selfishness, tribalism, people who did come together would come together in a sense of selfishness to over, you know, overthrow or subdue or to oppress somebody for their own self-benefit, where people would then begin to get their identity and their validity and value and different things and what God intended for them to do, by which created all the chaos that we all experience. But God committed to his vision. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world through a family in order to make us back into a family. That we would be people who would move away from the, the kind of the, the idea of the world eclecticness to find our unity around our following of an amazing king, King Jesus. That's the church. The church is the light. It is a pillar for the community by which we are to show to the world what it looks like for people to begin to come together as a family under the leadership of our good and amazing Father. Now, God has, you know, when, when Jesus rose from the, the dead and he ascended into heaven, he started this movement called the church. And you see right out, the, out of the gate, in the early movement of the Jesus movement, you see God beginning to take all of these people from all of these different and eclectic lives and bring them together under this one family, this family of God. And so we have, you know, these, these two individuals. It's, you know, it's found in, in Acts chapter 16, which we'll be kind of looking at today. You have these two individuals, Paul and Silas. Paul had already been on one missionary journey, and he felt like it was kind of time for him to go back and to check in to see how everybody was doing. A lot of that missionary journey was in kind of middle, what is middle day Turkey. So he, way down there on the kind of the northeast side of, of the Mediterranean Sea in a town called Antioch, he takes a, a guy with him, Silas, and they go. And so they go and they make their way through the middle part of Turkey and they come to this place called Lystra. They hear about this young man who uh, is a follower of Christ. It uh, doesn't say kind of how he came, became a follower of Christ. Maybe he became a follower of Christ through Paul's first missionary journey. Perhaps he became a follower of Christ through uh, people talking about the gospel after Paul had left. But he was a follower of Christ. And his father was a, was a Gentile. His mom was a Jew. And he became a follower of Jesus and was just growing. And people around just had a high respect for this young man by which Paul said, hey, I want you to come with me in order to mentor him. And so he does. And this, this young man's name is Timothy. And so you have, you have Paul and Silas and Timothy, and then they go um, and they head west. And they come to a place on the western side of Turkey, a place called Troas, speaking the gospel there. And it looks like this young, this, this intellectual uh, doctor, 
um, became a Christian there, accepted the message that Paul said about Jesus Christ being the savior of the world, this Gentile doctor, and he gave his life to Christ. This doctor's name is Luke. Maybe you've heard of that guy. Fun fact, you know, Luke uh, wrote uh, you know, more of the New Testament than anybody else in volume. Yeah, Paul wrote more letters, but Luke had more volume in his gospel or his writings of Jesus's life. And then also he wrote Acts as well. But we see from, from just putting the puzzle pieces there, that's where Luke was at there at Troas. And then, then now you had these four guys. You had these two Jews, Paul and Silas, with a half-Jew, young, young man named Timothy, with a brand new Gentile uh, believer of this, this, this doctor, this intellectual doctor named Luke. And Paul gets this vision, and the vision, it, it, there's this man from Macedonia says, hey, come over here, tell us about Jesus, tell us the good news about salvation that comes from, from God. And so, in obe- obeying that, the four guys take off, they go across the water over there into uh, what is now, you know, what was then kind of Macedonia. Uh, it's kind of northern Greece, if you think about it now, on a map. And so in verse 12 of Acts chapter 16, the two Jews, the young man and the doctor, they go there. And then from there, we, it's Luke writing here, um, we being him, Timothy, Paul, and Silas. From there, we reached Philippi, a major city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we stayed there several days. Now, kind of lock in your mind about the whole idea of several days, all right? So Paul and the gang comes to Philippi. And Philippi, like uh, Luke wrote here, was a Roman colony. About 100 years before, a guy named, uh, a Roman general by the name of Octavian, who would then become, later would become, the first Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, won two decisive victories that basically then solidified his leadership over the Roman Empire. And after those two battles, um, kind of a benefit of being part of his army, he gave this city, this area, to these, um, to these Roman soldiers tax-free. It was a beautiful piece of land. There was a, um, uh, beautiful fields for farming. It was right there near the mountains, a lot of gold mining there. Uh, it was just a great place to retire. And so this place, Philippi, was a pro, pro, high pro, pro Roman city. These were Romans who benefited from the power of Rome. And so they come there, these two Jews, this half Jew and this brand new believer who's a Gentile, they come into this, this city because they, because they were called to come into Macedonia to tell people about Jesus Christ. And so it goes on in verse Oh, and then, and then enters the next person here, which is a wealthy business lady. And so, so you have these four guys. And now here comes this wealthy business woman. Now, back in those days, what, uh, what Paul would do when he would come into a new city, he would go find the synagogue and go, first of all, to the Jews. Why would he go first to the Jews? Well, a couple of things. Number one, the prophets talked about, you know, the coming of the Messiah, the, the king whose reign would have no end. You know, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, that if anybody would understand, you know, the good news, it would be the Jews. Not only that, but the Jews were the covenant people that God gave the covenant. And it was through whom that that God became man by becoming a Jew in order to establish the new covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ. So he would go to the synagogue first. Well, because this was a, you know, a Roman colony, um, there wasn't a synagogue. So, because there probably wasn't enough Jews in order to make it, you know, a synagogue. So, he went down to, um, to the river, 
to go hunt, you know, to go see if anybody was down there, to go tell them about Christ. And so going on in verse 14, it says this. Now, going down to the river, one of them that was down there was a lady named Lydia from Thyatira. Thyatira is just a, a, a city in, in, um, in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. It was known for, it's specifically known back in those days, very popular for its purple dye. And so she came from there. That's why she's also a businesswoman who sells very expensive purple, purple clothes. And so she's there. She's finding, um, she, she lives there in Philippi. She's kind of relocated there because it's a Roman colony. They got some money there. And so it's a good business venture for her. So she's down there. She's praying, you know, and, and worshiping. And so one of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshiped God. Now, more than likely, Lydia wasn't a Jew. She was being a worshiper of God was kind of a code name or phrase for, for those who weren't Jews, but recognize that the God of Jews, Yahweh, is the true living God. And so she was down there worshiping with the rest of them. And as she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. Now, this is kind of amazing here because Luke is like a brand new believer here. And I love the fact that he's part of the conversation because it starts off. Now, there's no doubt that Paul was the one who's kind of leading the conversation. But in the conversation, she's listening to us. And it kind of reminded me of something that, that, that uh, Caleb mentioned last week from Paul's writing Colossians, Colossians 3.16, where it says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. So here is this, this brand new-ish, right, uh, Gentile believer speaking into his experience of what it means for a Gentile to come to faith in Christ to this, to this businesswoman who is probably a Gentile as well. You just see even at the very beginning, the body of Christ working together the, of the encouragement of people coming to faith in Jesus by expressing what they know, expressing their own experiences. And we see that, man, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what the Lord was saying. And it goes on in verse 15. And, and, and she, so she and her household were baptized. Her and her household were immersed into the followership of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things that's so important when you look at this, this uh, in Acts chapter 16 and also in Paul's letter to the Philippians, Paul uses this word Christ a lot. And the word Christ means anointed. Now, what that means to us, because it kind of means anointed, but back in those days, anointed means leader. It means king, King Jesus. And so what's interesting, what's, what's amazing about this, this thing is that for, for a Jew to recognize that Jesus is the king is to recognize that he truly is the fulfillment of the messianic promises. For a, for a Gentile to do this, and particularly what we're going to see with a Roman Gentile to do this is basically to say that the king of kings is not Caesar. The king of kings is Jesus Christ. So when they were immersed back in those days, it wasn't just this kind of nice religious thing or something that is important. It was a stake in the ground. I now identify myself with King Jesus. I'm now a part of his family. I now submit my life to him. So she and her household were baptized. And she asked us to be her guests. 
If you agree that I'm a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us, uh, and uh, she urged us until we agreed. And so, so now we added that person. And so then there's this, you know, impoverished slave girl. And she kind of comes on the scene um, as well. And Paul kind of goes, he goes back to the place of prayer every single day. And he comes across this this young girl who is basically demon-possessed, who makes a fortune, not for herself, but for her masters by telling the fortune of others. And so it goes on here in, in, in Acts chapter 16, the verse, next verse in 16. One day as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. She earned a lot of money for herself. No, for those who were her masters, those who used her, who oppressed her for their own beneficial gain. So she earned a lot of money for them, you know, for her masters by telling their fortune. And in verse 17, he goes on. So she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God and they have come to tell you how to be saved. So a demon possessed person is saying, hey, everybody, these people have come here to tell you how to be saved. You know, it's pretty bad when, when demons are more evangelistic than us Christians sometimes, right? But here's the thing. This isn't uncommon here. Like when everywhere Jesus went, demons would basically rat out Jesus and tell everybody who he is. He's the, he's the coming one, right? And it's important for us to understand because in our culture, a lot of times we, we tend to be afraid of, of demons and things like that and all that. But one thing I tell you what, when you look at Paul, you look at Jesus, none of them were ever afraid of, of Jesus. The demons were the ones who were afraid of who Jesus was and is. And so you see here, this, this girl, every time they come down to the place of prayer, they stop by this girl and she's just shouting these things to him. Until finally, in verse 18, um, Luke goes on and writes, he says, this went on day after day until Paul got exasperated that he turned and he said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly she was set free. Now you would think, right? You would think that these masters after hearing this from their fortune tellers, fortune teller, you know, that Jesus is going to win, right? Um, And that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Savior. And to see um, Paul, you know, say the words by which God, uh, through his spirit, expels the demon out of her, you would think that the, the, the masters would go, oh, wait a minute, how should I be saved? But there's money involved, right? And oftentimes when there's money involved, it's easy for our ears to be closed to the need and understanding of our own salvation. And so, you know, they don't, they don't get it. Instead, and they get really mad because, you know, instead of being excited that, wow, she's been freed from a demon. That's so wonderful. Man, the Savior of the world has come into the world. That's amazing. They're looking at their pocketbook and going, all right, you done messed with my money. Now I'm mad. 
So what do they do? You you can continue to go read on through there in in Acts chapter 16, but they go. They stir up the people in Philippi. Remember, this is a Roman colony. There's animosity between Gentiles and Jews. They don't really like each other very much. And so they basically say, hey, these guys are a bunch of Jews. And it's like, whoa, a bunch of Jews. Okay, now we're listening. Now we're all fired up. And and they're telling us that we got to practice a different way than what we're told and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and finally, they worked everybody up so much that they take them, take these guys, and Paul and Silas, they strip them down and they beat the crud out of them. Just pummel them. Boom, 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 boom. And you would think, this is what you get for setting a girl free from her oppression? And what do they do? They take Paul and Silas they throw them in jail. Not only do they throw them in jail, they put them in the inner jail in order to, you know, make sure that they don't go anywhere. They don't get out. And back in those days, right, if you need to go to the bathroom, there's no key to the bathroom. You're sitting in it. And who knows how long you're going to be there? You can be there till you rot and die. Paul and Silas, oddly enough, they're sitting there, they're praying, they're singing hymns to God, to the glory of God. God does something unusual. We call it a miracle. He opens up the doors. They become unshackled. They're free to go. They have been saved. Okay? They can just walk out. They've been saved from imprisonment. Well, at that moment, the the guard enter the the Roman guard. At that moment, uh, the prison guard recognizes that the, the gate, you know, has been open and he recognizes that they probably have just took off and run. That's what prisoners do. Usually if you're in prison in a really crummy place like that and the doors open, boop, and you're like not shackled to anything, you just kind of like, okay, let's go, you know? Uh, so he does the honorable thing when a dishonorable thing happens. He takes out a sword to kill himself. Because the failure of the prison guard. Now, Roman guard, he represents all that is oppressive of the Roman Empire. If you're a Jew and you grew up in the Israel area, you know, you have Romans who ultimately rule you. you. They tax you and then they pay for this army to oppress you. The angry individual, the justice, the righteous person would be like really quiet. Let's wait until he kills himself. Be one less Roman. So as he's about to kill himself, he doesn't get that. He gets, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Don't do anything. We're all here. We're all alive. And then right after that here in in Acts, continuing on Acts chapter 16, then he brought them out and asked. Okay, this is after he said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Don't harm yourself. We're all here. We didn't go. Then he said, hey, sirs, what must I do to be saved? In his mind, he's thinking about saved from like being killed for failing his job. What must I do in order not to lose my life? Which is really kind of interesting. It's kind of, you know, that the fact that, you know, worldly speaking, Paul and Silas were saved to be able to walk out. They were saved from prison, but they stayed in prison. Why did they stay in there? Because they were already saved. They already had eternal salvation. This jailer didn't. So this moment, this jailer is looking for salvation, not to be able to die right now. Paul then offers him the salvation that he had, you know, that Paul had, that eternal salvation. 
And so he says, this is, this is what he replied. Believe in the Lord Jesus. This is a Roman soldier. There's only one Lord. His name is Caesar. Paul is saying, if you want to be saved, then believe in the real Lord, the King of Kings, the one who doesn't give, who doesn't take lives, the one who laid down his life, the King of Kings. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. And they do. And it goes on here in, in verse 32. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. And then he and everyone else in his family were baptized. In verse 34, it goes on. And he brought them into his house and set a meal before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. Now, talk about amazing that all of these different people coming together to finding this, this, this place of salvation and grace and, and deliverance and, and freedom and life. And, and they become this family. Now, right after this, right, the, the leaders of the, of the town come in and they basically say, hey, you guys can, you guys can go, all right? And there's some things and some issues there and whatever, and you can read on that. But they finally do go. In verse 40, it says this. When Paul and Silas left the prison, they returned to the home of Lydia. There they met with the believers and encouraged them once more. And then what did they do? They left town. They left town. Okay, wait a minute. Um... We just became believers. <laughs> um, this, this whole thing is kind of new. Like, I mean, it'd be like if I was a senior pastor here for like, like a few weeks. That's what, you know, Luke earlier on said after several days, we stayed there for several days. Be like yeah, planning a church and then like four weeks later saying, all right, you know what? I planted this church, you know, and I'm gone. I'm out of here. Wait a minute. You just got here. How in the world did, did the church in the first century just continue to take off with a, with a model like that? You know how it took off like that? It took off by when, when Paul left, guess what everybody did? Oh God, please be with us. Oh God, please be with us. Be with me, be with each other. Remember, remember what Paul said about Jesus. They began to really, truly just come together because they had to under just their up, oh, just dependence on the Lord and the encouragement and dependence on one another. That's how this thing really kind of kept growing. Now, Paul would write letters back. He would send people back to go and encourage them and, and all of these things. But the reason why the church grew like it did was because it was truly a together thing. It wasn't a bunch of attenders who came to hear Paul speak. It was a group of people that became a family that recognized, hey, you know what? The king of this world really doesn't like the fact that we follow another king. We got to stick together. And they did. They stick together and they loved each other and encouraged each other. Later on, Paul wrote a letter to this group of Christians in, in Philippians. And in Philippians chapter 2, he gives us the, kind of the, the secret ingredients of how does an incredibly eclectic group of people Two Jews, a young half-Jew, an intellectual doctor who's a Gentile, non-Jew, and a wealthy businesswoman, a poor slave girl, a Roman jailer. How do they all go and do life together? Well, Paul writes this. 
in Philippians chapter 2. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Where's the core of our unity? It's in this guy right here, the king, the Christos, the anointed one. If you've been encouraged at all from the king, he's the one who brings us together. Any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the spirit. Are your hearts tender and compassionate for one another? This isn't about what you do for a job. This isn't about how much money you make. It doesn't matter what kind of music you listen to. These aren't the things that, should, you, know, that you should bank on and be the base by which you do life together. This is the base by which Paul was saying you do life together. It's, this is the base by which we do our life together. In verse 2, he goes on and he says this in his letter back to these, this group. That made me truly happy. How? By agreeing wholeheartedly with each other as you agree wholeheartedly with the Christ, with Jesus, loving one another, meaning grace, as you've received grace from God, give each other grace. Working together, we do this together with one mind and one purpose that is given to us by King Jesus. And going on, verse three and four. So don't be selfish. That's what brings everything apart. Don't try to impress others because this is an impressive game. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. If we're to be impressed by anybody, let's be impressed by Jesus. Be humble. Think of each other, of others, as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but look out for the interests of one another. And then in verse 5, he says this. You must have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, of King Jesus. The church as coming together as a family, as an older brother who is our king. And he's not just our king, he is our model. He is the one who shows what it's like for us to come into a reconciling relationship with God and in and one another. How we do life with each other. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, Jesus said, you must love one another. After washing their feet, he said, I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. You should have the same attitude. So when we think about what is it about the family of God that unifies us, there's a couple of things. One is the realization that we're all more alike than different. Every single one of us in this room are a lot more alike than different. Everyone in this room is here because we all want to know the God who created us. We're all the same in that. Every single one of us in this room, we've all failed. We've all messed up. None of us are perfect. Every single one of us in this room, we were created with this internal desire to have close-knit relationships with other people, to, to be an extended family. Every single one of us has a God-shaped hole by which by through the grace of God, when we come to faith in Christ, he fills that hole with love. We are more alike than we are different. And so what Paul's teaching us and what we see with a whole bunch of collective, what seemingly is eclectic individuals are really, we're all the same. We find our similarity around Jesus Christ and that's, and he's the one who makes us strong, especially when we find our unity around that. One of the verses in scripture that I just love, that I just think really encapsulates, what does it mean and how are we supposed to do life together as brothers and sisters in Christ, and why is it that we should come together 
is from Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, which just simply says this. It says, let us consider, let, a, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward what? Toward love and good deeds, as exemplified by Christ himself. Let us not give up what? Meeting together. As some are in the habit of doing. Well, why? Can I just, I thought, can I just like be my own church? Thomas Paine once said, my mind is my church. Can I just go down to the beach and just open up my Bible and just be by myself and all of that? You know, can I just go and live and do that? And Hebrews says, no, you need to meet with other people. You know why? Because this world is hard. It's not just the hard stuff that we experience. There's also all sorts of temptations and things that pull us from side to side that just messes up. We need people in our lives to encourage one another. The word encourage just basically means to give courage. That we get together in relationship with one another to give each other courage. Remember, he is alive. Remember the promises that we have in Christ Jesus, the inheritance that we have for eternity. Remember, we're in this together. You're not alone. You're not isolated. We're in this together. Harvard just recently came out with this study. And they found that, uh, that we learn better in what is called active learning. Active learning is where we sit around and we talk and we converse about certain things and we go and we put it into practice. We learn more from that than coming to a TED Talk or to a great lecture. But here's the funny thing about it when they, when they um, you know, question the, the students there at Harvard. In their minds, they thought that they would learn a lot more by sitting in a lecture room like this and having this, you know, the Secretary of Defense come and talk about defense or have whatever world leader to come and talk upon that subject. And in their study... You know, they found that even though students thought the lecture would give them more knowledge that would help them to become masters in a certain area, it's not true. Active learning, getting together with other people to come together to talk about whatever they're talking about, to put it into practice, has greater influence in learning and, and putting it into practice. Guess what? Boom! Jesus is so smart. It's called the church. The church was not meant to be a place where you come and listen to a message. Now they did. They would go to, you know, the temple and they would, you know, teach. But they would also go into their small homes and do life together. Sit around and talk about God as revealed to us and given to us through uh, the word of God. That a group of people coming together in submission to the Holy Spirit speaking into our hearts to encourage one another that we would recognize that life in the way that God works isn't just a bunch of programs at church. God gives us only really one program. You know what that program is? It's your life. Your life is the greatest program for your life transformation. The moment that you take all the things that you have conversations over with other believers and you put that into practice at work, at school, in your marriages, in your relationships, you're going to have far greater impact in your life than hearing a bunch of podcasts and messages. Those are helpful, but they're not as helpful. 
God meant for us to come together truly as a family to encourage one another. We've been talking about relaunch, and one of the things about relaunching River Run is just this idea of what it would be like if we just continue. We'll never be perfect at it until Christ comes, but what if we just continue to work on what does it mean for a bunch of strangers to come together and to become a family, to encourage each other, to find our unity around our common love and thankfulness and devotion to Jesus Christ? And that we would take these things and that we would take the things that we've been encouraging each other to do and to walk out in faith and we would do it and we would put it into practice into the program of life. And then we would come back in our small groups or wherever and debrief and talk about it and, and converse about it. And, and then we just keep growing stronger. I believe it will make us so much stronger individually and together as a family. As we relaunch our church and we've been doing this, that we would continue to find our strength, not just in good biblical preaching, not just in great worship, not just in, you know, good programs here, but we grow in strength through our relationships to each other to encourage each other to keep pursuing Jesus Christ. We're going to take a time of response here, and this is a perfect time for us to do this. One of the things about I love about communion is a perfect time for us to remember we got a good king. We don't have an oppressive king. We have a king that's willing to give up his life for us because he loves us that much. And so as we come and we take of the bread and of the juice to remind us of God's incredible sacrifice through his son, Jesus Christ, God says to us, come, whoever you are, come, Jew, Gentile, wealthy, poor, come in all your perfections and let me wash you with my blood and my forgiveness. And we're going to get up and we're going to do that together as a family. There's also opportunities here. We'll have people on the side to, to pray. And guess what they are? They're family. To come together to talk about things that are important to you, to talk to them, to God together, to pray with them there as well. And also we have just the continual just reminder of the, the opportunity to worship God through what God has given us by which we are generous so that way other people can be part of our family, that we can pull our resources together to also take care of our family. And so we have our offering baskets out there. So let's pray and let's do this together. Father, you know in this room that, you know, when it comes to the things of this world, we're all in different places, come from different cultures, different backgrounds, different, you know, educations, different natural gifts, spiritual gifts. We're all different. And God, the beauty of all of that is that when we understand our commonality, that every single one of us in this room needs a Savior. A wealthy businesswoman who had a lot of money, she had recognized she needed a Savior. An intellectual doctor, smarter than everybody else, understood that he needed a Savior. A religious leader who had the law and had all the playbook in hand, understood that he still needed a Savior. And so did all the rest. And so every single one of us in this room understands that we need a Savior. And so, Father, I pray that you would just bond us together around the fact of the joy of knowing that we are saved through your Son, Jesus Christ. And that through that, you bond us together as family. What a blessing to be able to walk through this life with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us to continue to get better at that. It's in your Son's name I pray. Amen.